This week on the OT Potential Podcast, we are diving into a model that many OTs credit for transforming their occupational therapy practice. And this model is the Kawa model. The Kawa model is many things, but it's maybe best understood as a mental model that uses a river as a metaphor for one's life journey. And within this model is occupational therapists. Our goal is to enable, restore, and or maximize a client's life flow. The Kawa model works for our individual clients, which is how many people use it, but it also works for groups. And in this podcast, we'll be looking at a particular journal article that showcases how an acute care therapy team uses the model to openly discuss and problem solve their team flow. And after a review of this article, it is just my honor to be welcoming on Dr. Michael Iwama, who is a co-creator of the Kawa model. Together, him and I will discuss the research article and most importantly, how the Kawa model can inspire your practice. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into the Kava model and team collaboration, I wanted to let you know that this podcast episode may qualify as continuing education for you. Now, you can listen to this podcast for free, basically wherever you find podcasts, but to gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club. And the OT Potential Club is our online evidence-based practice platform. We have lots of resources in there, but one of the things that you can do related to this episode is log into there, take a test related to this podcast episode, and earn a continuing education certificate. So bearing in mind that this could count as a continuing education course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the discussion today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to identify the five interrelated constructs of the Kawa model. And our second objective is that you will be able to recognize the flexibility of the theory and how it can be utilized to foster team collaboration. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then we'll bring on Dr. Michael Awama to discuss how this research can play out in your practice. The article that we are looking at today is called Cultivating Acute Care Rehabilitation Team Collaboration Using the Kawa Model. It comes to us from the Internet Journal of Allied Health Sciences and Practice, and it was published in 2019. So in the introduction to the article, they kind of give an overview of several topics and what the research says about them. And we'll kind of go through those one by one. And the first topic that they cover is why team collaboration is important in acute care. Now, the importance of team collaboration, I think, is pretty easy to intuit, especially in the fast-paced and unpredictable environment of acute care. And the literature that they share and review in the introduction really backs up what many of us have experienced firsthand. So in this introduction, they share research that points to that poor collaboration can negatively impact patient care and reduce team morale, job satisfaction, and productivity. 
So knowing that team collaboration is important, it's something that we've experienced, what do we know from the research about how to foster effective team collaboration? The authors point out that fostering team collaboration is easy to overlook in a busy workplace. And even if you do dedicate time and effort to improving collaboration, it's possible that this energy could just kind of fall flat without the right pieces in place. The literature review that they share gives some insight into what effective team collaboration looks like. According to the authors of this article, there are four pillars of effective team building. The first is goal setting. Second is interpersonal relations. Third is problem solving. And fourth is role clarification. So we know that if we want to foster better team collaboration, we should have these pillars. But the problem that the authors highlight is that there isn't really a specific approach or model that has been studied that incorporates all four of these components. And that is where the Kava model comes into play. So to close out the introduction, they end with talking about how the Kawa model could potentially foster team collaboration. The Kawa model has already been shown to support collaboration and decision-making in the occupational therapy process with individual clients. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this model uses a river metaphor that has five interrelated constructs. I'm going to breeze through these quickly here, and then Dr. Iwama and I will touch on them a little bit later. But the five constructs are river flow, which is like your life flow and your priorities. The second construct is the river banks, and these are thought of as the social and physical environments or contexts. The third is rocks, which is the obstacles and challenges that the river faces. Fourth is driftwood, which they say is influencing factors. We're going to talk about this one specifically in the interview in a little bit. And fifth is spaces, which is opportunities for enhancing river flow. So that's a brief overview of the Kawa model. And an exploratory study has already suggested that the elements of the Kawa model, which are used to enable improved communication and collaborative relationships, really match those essential elements of team building that I mentioned before. So there's kind of been some initial exploratory studies, but the effectiveness of using the Kawa model to enhance collaboration really hasn't been studied in the acute care setting, which leads us to this article. So the purpose of this article was to implement an evidence-based team-building intervention using the Kawa model and to investigate the impact on team collaboration. The study took place in a suburban hospital in Pennsylvania, and all regularly scheduled members of an acute care rehabilitation team volunteered to participate. There were eight members of this team, four physical therapists, three occupational therapists, and one speech therapist. So how is this team-building intervention structured? The article tells us that there was one leader of the intervention who was a content expert in Kawa and also an experienced team member. And over the course of five weeks, this facilitator met with the team members both on an individual level and on group levels to discuss team collaboration in the Kawa model. And essentially, each rehab member gave about an hour a week to this endeavor. In the first two weeks, each of the team members met one-on-one -on -one with the facilitator, and she gave them individual information on Kawa and team building. 
In weeks three and four, they met in groups of four. So they divided the group in half and had two smaller groups. And in that, they drew individual Kawa River drawings and discussed that and just became more familiar with the process of the Kawa River model. And then in the fifth and final week, they met as a full group of eight. They did a Kawa River drawing that represented their team and their flow and ultimately developed a list of ways to improve their team flow. The article gives even more detail about each week than I just gave there, but hopefully that gives you um, a pretty concrete idea of what the structure of this intervention looked like. So how was the effectiveness of these sessions measured? They use a pre-test, post-test study designed where essentially the participants completed a survey before and after they went through these sessions. The survey was created by the study's authors and they involved basically five Likert scale questions and then three open-ended questions. And what were the results? Did the participants feel like these sessions helped their team collaboration? The article goes into detail on each question, but most notably of the results and what the authors highlighted is that 100% of the participants agreed or strongly agreed that the Kawa River model can improve overall acute care rehab team collaboration. And just in these five weeks, they all indicated that their familiarity with the Kawa model significantly increased from the beginning to the end. The authors looked at this data and they concluded that the study supports the use of the Kawa model to improve acute care team collaboration. Further study is recommended, including a longitudinal study in which participants use the Kawa model to discuss the team well-being twice a year. So that is our journal article. And now I'm so excited to invite on our guest who is going to help us understand this model even more and how it can be used in team collaboration. And our guest today is Dr. Michael Awama. Dr. Awama currently serves as an occupational therapy professor at the Duke University School of Medicine. He has a long history of teaching, and I'm going to direct you to his bio on our course page just to see all the places that he's taught and his work experience. But I did want to highlight that he is widely recognized for having developed the Kawa River model the first substantial model of practice in the rehabilitation sciences developed outside of the English-speaking world. The Kawa model is now taught in over 600 education programs internationally and is used in practice across six continents. He has emerged as a very important and progressive thinker in the fields of occupational therapy and rehabilitation sciences worldwide. Dr. Awama draws on his rich experience of acculturating into Eastern and Western social spheres of experience to drive his profound and critical perspectives on culture and its intersections with theory and practice in the rehab sciences. Dr. Awama is a passionate and captivating communicator. Since his book, The Kawa Model, Culturally Relevant Occupational Therapy, was published in 2006, he has given hundreds of national and international lectures on the topic and has had more than 25 publications in English and Japanese professional journals. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to patch Dr. Awama into our call. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Awama. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I have been thinking today or observing to myself that I always get a little nervous before every single podcast. And part of it is that I want to do justice to whatever the topic is. And today I just had to kind of 
let go of being able to do full justice to this topic. The Kawa model, there's so much to talk about. And I just had to be okay with, we may not get to all of it today, but I'm excited for what we do get to in the conversation. Well, that's great. And depending on how you and the and the audience looks at this podcast, if you want me to come back and do a follow-up or you know, a part B to this, then please just, just say so, and I'll, I'll be happy to do that. Yeah, that would be awesome. I'm reading through the book, and it's just all underlines for me, and I'm Googling stuff as I'm reading. And for me, the Kawa model is connecting so much with what I'm learning in other aspects of my life, too, which is honestly sometimes not the case in occupational therapy. Like, sometimes... I think our language and models are a little too distinct where they don't connect with our lived experience and other things that we're engaging with. So I think that's a great testament to the Kawa model and its usefulness. Well, well, thank you. And, And I hope that through the duration of this podcast that we'll be able to talk about some of those things and some of those qualities of the Kawa model. Absolutely. So I want to start just kind of at the beginning and focused on your story and hear the story of how you found occupational therapy. (laughs) Well, I'm sure that everybody has an interesting narrative about how they found themselves into this, what I consider to be the most wonderful health profession on the planet. (laughs) Uh, I want to preface that by just going back a little bit further and saying that I was born and raised in Japan. And it was in the early 1970s that my family had moved from Japan to Vancouver, Canada on the West Coast to North America. And uh, I finished most of my tertiary education in that part of the world. And I went to university and studied for my first degree, which was the bachelor's degree, bachelor of science degree in exercise physiology or human performance. And it was a natural kind of progression from there to work with elite athletes. And and that's what I was doing, uh, working with Canada's national teams and a professional ice hockey team. And I found out that I wasn't really quite interested in working with people trying to reach super normal levels of performance. (laughs) I wanted to work with people that were at, if I can use the term, subnormal levels of performance, trying to reach some semblance of normalcy. So then the, the next step would be then to go into physical therapy. I got accepted mm-hmm. into a physical therapy program. And then it was during one of the, the, my clinical experiences that, and this was in Canada at the time, I came across a couple of OTs from the United States. They were from California. And I was observing that they were doing occupational therapy. And uh, they were working with a, a client who had suffered a stroke. And what fascinated me was that every day that I'd observed them in the gym, they were always doing something different. And that really intrigued me. And I got talking to them. And, you know, at the time, I didn't know the importance of this, but they they told me that, I mean, they were a married couple. And they had studied at a place called the University of Southern California. And their teachers were people like Mary Riley and Gene Ayers and you know, now I look back and think, holy smokes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But they spoke about occupational therapy in such a compelling way that I actually moved into their basement 
and um, <laughs> and actually lived with them. And, you know, one day over dinner at the dining room table, I looked across to the lintel above the doorway to the, to the kitchen, and there was this wonderful carving of a tree. And uh, I asked them, you know, well, which one of you carved that? And they said, oh, no, uh, we didn't make that. That was made by one of our classmates. That was carved by a, a fellow named Gary Kielhoffner. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, so needless to say, I, I was really fortunate to have had a, a really nice introduction to the wonders of occupational therapy. And it just moved me so much that I did the most audacious thing. And that was that I quit my aspirations of becoming a physical mm-hmm. therapist to become an OT. Wow. And I haven't looked back since. It's just been a, a wonderful profession, a wonderful career. And so, you know, here I am, no regrets at all. (laughs) I love hearing that story because you've had such an incredible career, but your origin story kind of sounds like so many of ours where so many people found OT because they were sitting in a rehab gym thinking about going into PT and they looked across the gym and they were like, oh, what's this other profession that seems way more interesting than counting repetitions. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was doing. <laughs> repetitions when I was, you know, spying these OTs doing their thing. And the, the area that I went to practice in initially after graduating as an OT was in the field of return to work occupational therapy, vo- vocational rehabilitation. And I think that that was also significant in that it really opened the door to the social the psychosocial dimension of rehabilitation uh, at the time it was rehab but you know i just found all of that so fascinating and so profound that yeah it really increased my curiosity and that's mm-hmm. what would then uh, push me to then go to graduate school and then pursue phd's in the field of sociology as well as most recently in medical anthropology hmm. i love how your story too includes working with those professional athletes and people who were really like pushing for that pinnacle of health. And I think in OT, sometimes we get caught up in language that's like, we help patients maximize their health, or I'm just coming off a podcast talking about our vision and we use language like that. But I'm like, that to me doesn't really capture what OT is. That's your work with professional athletes. That's not what most of us are doing. And to me, that kind of segues into the Kawa model, which is a totally different understanding of occupational therapy than I think a lot of us, especially me coming from the United States in this Western view of occupational therapy. So I guess my next question is, I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little story of how this model was developed. I know it's probably a five-hour story and we have a (laughs) shorter window than that, but some of the high points there. Well, I I think that's a really important question uh, and something that we don't maybe ask often enough about the theoretical frameworks and the models that we do encounter. But, you know, the Kawa model wasn't just some kind of a thing that somebody did on the side, you know, as a, as a hobby or, or as a leisure activity, but rather it came out of a need. And I mentioned that I was born and raised in Japan. And after studying to be an OT and practicing as an OT in North America, 
I had the opportunity to return back to my homeland of Japan and to teach in one, help establish one of the first bachelor's programs in OT in Japan at the time. And that was in the uh, 1990s. And when I went there, I found that Japanese occupational therapists were intensely interested in what American occupational therapists were doing. And at the time, theory and models were like the thing. The model of human occupation, for example, was just really something that I think at the time was quite prominent in the field here in the United States. And the Japanese wanting to emulate the so-called leader in OT, American occupational therapy, they wanted to learn occupational therapy theory, but they had a problem. They couldn't understand it. No matter how many workshops they went to and how many books they read, they couldn't get their heads around it. So here I came and they were full of hope because they thought, finally, we have a person who can speak Japanese Mm -hmm and is an occupational therapist and has taught models at the college level in Canada. So finally, we have somebody who can help us to get up to speed with the rest of the world. And I I held a workshop, a national workshop, and found out very quickly that there was a much more profound problem in that it wasn't that they were inadequate in their intellect to be able to understand the model, but rather none of the concepts, even the concept of occupation, was something that was incomprehensible to them. And I thought that that was really quite fascinating. But as I was acculturating myself back into Japanese life, I thought, oh my goodness, maybe it's not the intellectual level that's lacking. Maybe the models are wrong. Maybe the theory is wrong. And and I realized that the Japanese at the time had been struggling to even define in Japanese language occupation as occupational therapists knew and evolved that concept. So meeting together then with some discouraged occupational therapists there, I said, maybe at the time, which was the audacious thing, and that was, why don't we create a model? Hmm. Why don't we create a new model of occupational therapy? And why don't we create something that not only Japanese occupational therapists could relate to, but more importantly, clients of occupational therapy. Because even back in North America, we we were developing theory and concepts, words that our clients at the end of the day couldn't understand Mm -hmm. and, and relate to. They just had to sort of take it on faith that we knew what we were doing. So I embarked on this project of putting together a qualitative research project And we would go through the steps of trying to then develop a relevant model of occupational therapy. So we met on a weekly basis in the evenings at a local university. And those sessions were full of passionate discussion. We'd often go until 2 or 3 a.m. But however, at the end of the day, we were able to articulate what was most important to Japanese people with regard to their health and well-being, what the meaning of disability was in the context of Japanese culture, and also how occupational therapy could be explained. Mm. And it wasn't until later on through that process that we had an epiphany. And that was all of this can be explained much more easily through the metaphor 
of a river. And as that sort of came together, I realized as well that the model itself that we, we were creating may have been relevant to Japanese people. But I discovered that the metaphor that it's based on is actually something that people all around the world could relate to. And I think it has something to do with the fact that it's a metaphor that's based on an element of nature. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So that's my long-winded answer to why the Kawa model was developed. It was in response to a real need, a desperate need for OTs in a particular place in the world to be able to understand occupational therapy and be able to articulate its purpose and its characteristics in a systematic way. And so back in the late 1990s, it was something that was relevant to Japanese OTs. And then a series of events would compel me or push me to leave Japan and to take the model then on an international level. So that's the story behind the the origins of the Kawa model. Hmm. When you were teaching occupational therapy and there was that disconnect, would you say that disconnect, even with the word occupation, is because of this emphasis that we put on like individual agency here in the West? In lots of ways, that doesn't even hold up for us how we actually live our lives, but I think that's how we think of ourselves. Um, was was that kind of the rub, or was it something different that no, I'm that missing? That was exactly the rub, and that is that I had found that many of the things that we engage with in, in the world, the impetus for how we act on the world is often invisible to us. It's just because it's the way that we see the world and make sense of the world and of truth and reality, you know, we have just assumed that it's sort of the way that everybody around us also views and makes sense mm-hmm. of truth and reality, you know? And we're not so familiar with those things that are just normal to us. So it took a trip to Japan, back to my homeland, to think, oh my goodness, the Japanese people are really different. You know, they're they're not so individually oriented. They're they're very much group and collectivist oriented, and they structure their social groups into strict hierarchies. And this is due to the fact that they've been influenced for hundreds of years from Confucian uh, philosophy and ethic, hmm. and Buddhism, and you know, along with that comes a particular understanding and view of the world and our place within it. And it's when I was immersed in there and becoming Japanese again that I could look across the Pacific Ocean and think, oh my goodness, man, those Canadians and Americans are really consumed with themselves. (laughs) They place themselves in the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. And the environment around them is not seen as something that they are necessarily a part of, and equal with, but rather the environment is somehow there, external to the self, that's waiting for us to use. That we like master or, yeah. Yeah, to to gain mastery or to exercise mastery over it. And I think that that's really fundamental to how we understand occupational therapy. If you look at the the models in occupational therapy that have been developed today, the, the established ones, A common denominator of all of those, a common feature, is that 
the person, or there's always a concept for the individual, and that individual is centered in mm-hmm. the middle of the universe. Yep. And everything kind of revolves around them. And I think I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but the other really important feature of Western models of occupational therapy is that there's always a concept for the self, and the self is seen as a distinct and separate entity from a distinct and separate environment. And we've created a narrative around this thing that connects us, that bridges the gap between ourselves and the environment, and that would be occupation. Mm -hmm. That's the instrumental value of occupation. Through occupation, we engage the world. And through that engagement, we get a sense, we not only affect our own health and well-being, but we get a sense of our being. And through that occupation, we can become. But, you know, from a Japanese existence, you know, when the view is such that, oh, the environment is in me, as much as I am in the environment, that's what my students in OT in Japan would ask me. What do you mean? Like, I can't make sense of what you're saying, Dr. Iwama. (laughs) The the, the self and the environment are separate and we need this thing called occupation. (laughs) And they're saying, if I'm in the environment as the environment is in me, then what's the instrumental value of this thing that you call occupation? You know, like, what is that? And Mm -hmm. and that's really the basis to why they couldn't quite understand what occupation in occupational therapy was all about. And if you look at all the countries around Asia, you'll see that every single OT association in these various countries have developed a different term, a different word or concept for occupation. And in Japan, it happens to be sagyo, which is the Japanese word for tedious, laborious, unpleasant, hard work. <laughs> and so if you're a therapist with that in your name, then Ooh, um, <laughs> it conjures up a certain image, doesn't it? But yeah. because they didn't have a word in their own language and lexicon to capture all of the meanings that we've given occupation, the concept of occupation from the culture of occupational therapy in the West, this is, you know, the best that they can do. Mm-hmm. But that was a great epiphany. And it's interesting that when you place yourself in a different context, a different set of surroundings, that all of a sudden you become aware of those, those things that were invisible to you before. That is, my goodness, Americans and Canadians are consumed with the individual. It's about independence. It's about my rights It's about me. And if I lose my ability to do what I want to do, that's the end of the world for me. I don't want to live if I can't do the things that I set out to do. And, you know, our focus on goals, we have to have goals and rationally, you know, create a path toward those goals in the future. Whereas, you know, in a collectivist culture where the environment and people and others and everything in the universe is equally interdependent as the self that then you know situates the person in the here and now because that's the only thing that you really have direct control over and your your orientation temporally is not for the future but rather for the things that you know are certain and real and that's the here and now right 
it has all kinds of implications for how we think about occupational therapy and about occupation. And that would be a segue for me to be able to say, you don't have to go to another country to understand that there is a mismatch between the ideas of occupational therapy that are articulated in our models and our theory and the real world of meanings of our clients in our own neighborhoods, in our own communities, in our own country. You're going to meet people that come from all different walks of life that differ, not just from your life, but from the ideals that are embedded in the imperatives that we have in occupational therapy as dictated by our models and our theory. I don't know if that makes sense. It's kind of a deep, um, a much more profound exploration of foray into the ideas underlying the Kawa model. But mm-hmm. this is where it all came from. Yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense to me. And I think I feel really primed to hear this model more so than I would have been 10 years ago, even. And I think I keep coming back to the science of like, I've just been learning in the past couple of years about how when we're in a conversation with someone, our brains almost sink in a way. Like there's a science between the sinking that happens between consciousness. The science is showing we're so much more interconnected than we ever thought we were on this neurobiological level. So true with our environment and true with each other. And then the pandemic for me is really showcased like, I don't care about maximum health and independence. I want to be healthy enough where I can interact with my family and friends. That connectivity is actually what matters to me, even though I'm in this very Western individualistic world. That hasn't held up for me over the pandemic. Maximum independence is not my life goal. And Well, I always say that models don't descend from heaven to be used universally by everyone everywhere, like, you know, one size of shoe fits everybody. But rather, models like the Kawa model and Moho and the Canadian model and so on, and PEO and so on and so forth, they're actually made by human beings like you and me. And they are, I guess, representations of what we think is normal and good, right? So if you come from a a middle-class or relatively affluent background where you have the privilege to be able to engage in activities that are pleasurable and have meaning to you, you know, that's going to be embedded in the frameworks and the models and things that we create, right? And so, you know, I think that as we move further into this era of understanding how much more connected that we are, I think that things like the pandemic will remind us that these models that we have are actually culturally bound, they're limited, they're exclusive to a great extent, and that if we want occupational therapy to become as powerful as we believe that it can become, to move toward its potential, we're going to have to come to realize that very truth, that there isn't one grand narrative, and that our models have some great limitations and we need to be much more adept at choosing what models to use, what models to adapt and change. God forbid, I think that a lot of 
authors of other models uh, don't want to hear that uh, kind of thing. But anyway, I, I think that, yeah, you know, your, your meditations about the pandemic and, and about connection, I think, are just really spot on. It, it, and it, it will have a way, hopefully, of informing occupational therapy as we move forward mm-hmm. and develop our ideas and try to move our relevancy closer to the real world of meanings of our clients. Yep. Yeah, as I've spent time with this model, I've been like, of course, our models have to be flexible and agile to interact with all the kinds of different peoples that we see. And they have to have words that our patients and clients would actually use. That's been such a barrier to us, I think, in connecting with our patients is having too distinct of a language that it doesn't translate to the everyday. I want to ask you, I in the beginning, before you got on, I kind of gave an overview of the Kawa model that I had read off the website, but I wanted to give you just a couple minutes to say how you understand the Kawa model today and if that's shifted for you or if it's held fast over the past decade. Yeah, I, you know, I am much more aware of this concept of impermanence, that things are always changing, that things are always in flux. And as we, as our rivers flow further in life, our rivers are informed by all of the things that happened upriver, you know, before the water got to this point in its course. And so the Kawa model has been also that way for me in that, you know, in terms of how it was thought about in the very beginning as a model to kind of direct occupational therapy in a way that would be understandable to our clients, I'm finding out that there are other truths that the model has, I guess, awakened within me. And I think it has something to do with nature, with the fact that when we, you know, go into nature and commune with nature, we begin to notice certain patterns of how things work. You know, the seasons change and, you know, the flora and the fauna and the temperature of the air changes and, and it goes through this particular cycle, you know, that is regular. And then I realize, oh my goodness, you know, we've somehow lost this connection and by privileging the power that we think that we've been given. And that is to be masters of our own destiny and where, you know, we can play God and we can, we can, you know, shape our lives and do things the way that we want to. And I'm I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that, you know, we've gone toward the mechanical and we've left behind nature when nature is actually something that is essential for our, our existence. So, yeah, so, but there are all kinds of other epiphanies that, that have come along the way. And I've just been really bowled over by how useful this metaphor is and that it's not just useful for occupational therapy on an individual level, but that it's a metaphor that can be effectively used by communities and groups of people, as well as by organizations. And I've even learned through the pandemic that it's been a really wonderful way to understand resiliency and 
Yeah, so those are just some thoughts that come to mind. Yeah. Things are always in flux. Things are always changing. But, you know, as long as the metaphor of the river to depict the life course is maintained, it doesn't become outdated. I think that the model still has a potential to be useful. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of laughing to myself because I made a note on my questions to ask you specifically about the driftwood component of the model. And I definitely want you to explain that. But as, as I'm sitting here thinking about our interactions with the natural world, I come from the flattest place in the United States. The river by me is known as being like a mile wide and an inch deep and we don't have trees and we don't have driftwood. And I didn't put together that that's probably part of the reason where I was like, what's this driftwood part? Because for me, that's not my experience of standing in a river. And I think I was having troubles. I didn't realize that that was because of where I'm at. I probably had troubles visualizing that part of it. Yeah, well, you know, you're not alone in that. I remember the first time that I talked about the Kawa model to people in Saudi Arabia. And, you know, it's a country that doesn't really have any rivers. Oh, yeah. But I was told, they told me, no, but we understand what rivers are. And we're familiar with water. You know, we cook with it. We wash with it. We know how it flows. We know how it goes. And here they are. They've just developed a translation of the Kawa model book which, you know, is really quite remarkable that that work was done in a place that doesn't have any rivers. But so, yeah. And so at some point, if you ask me about the driftwood, I'm, I'll be more than happy to explain a little bit more clearly what, what that's all about. Yeah, let's do it. So what I had written down was influencing factors. Could you speak a little bit more to that and how you see that now? Sure. So, The question about the driftwood is one that I think is probably most often asked. Okay. I wasn't alone. You're not, you're certainly not alone. (laughs) And so what the driftwood is, is that in the context of the river image or metaphor, that's the one element that is constantly changing. I mean, all things are constantly changing, but the driftwood is explained as this thing that where driftwood can just flow down the course of a river and just be inconsequential. It's just there. It just flows through the water. It doesn't, you know, hit anything or combine with anything else. It just goes along with the flow. But at certain times, that same piece of driftwood can get caught between the hard structures in the river with rocks and with the river walls and sides. And when that happens, the impediment to flow of the rock and the river walls and sides and the driftwood, the the, the impediment to flow is actually compounded. And then on the other hand, driftwood can actually have a a positive function in that it can come along and push a, a, a rock to the side or erode the hard surfaces of either the rock or the, or the river walls thus creating a greater channel of flow, right? So so the driftwood are a very interesting element because it can have a positive value, it can have a a negative and not so good value, or it can be completely neutral and not have any kind of effect at all. So this is the concept that I created for personal factors, things that were actually inside or that belong to 
in this case, the individual. If we were using it in the context of a community or a group, then it would be those things that are inherent in the community. And so these can be things like material things. For example, it can be money. It can be a certain tool or instrument or whatever it is. But most often, the driftwood is used to depict those things that are not material, that are within the self. So it might have to do with a personality type, where maybe you're a headstrong person and your <laughs> friends describe you as being really stubborn uh, to a fault, or that you're obsessed with detail and organization, or that you're a laid-back, easy person that's affable and you know, issues and problems just fall off of you like water on the duck's back. And then, of course, it can also stand for those internal things that the person has in terms of abilities and experience. So maybe they went to college and studied computer science or something, and they're really good with computers. Or a person is really good at art, can draw pictures, and, you know, is really gifted that way. Or Maybe they're musically inclined. They've been, you know, somehow born with the right DNA and, you know, they can pick up a violin and play it almost immediately. You know, so, or, or just experience of having had difficult experiences of, you know, of becoming a single parent and having to look after four children in the inner city under conditions of abject poverty. All of these things are those things that are embodied, that are connected to the person. So, for example, when we're using the Kawa model, that piece of driftwood that's stuck between the rocks and the river walls, it, you know, we might say that, okay, the, the rock that's sitting there that this driftwood gets caught on is you know, the symptoms around a particular injury. You know, a person's had a back injury and uh, this is a pain and the pain and the weakness in one's legs that prevent this person from being able to get on with their lives. And then the river walls in this case would be, you know, aspects of the social environment, which is that the family members are now sick and tired of this person's complaints and there are constant quarrels and fights every day. And then in the physical environment, it may be that the home that this person lives in has a lot of stairs. Just to get to the bedroom to, to have a rest on the bed requires this person to use their aching legs to be able to go up. And in this case, the driftwood for this person might be that they're headstrong and they're stubborn. And so when it gets caught in this particular space, it just increases the level of frustration and to the point where this person just doesn't want to do anything anymore, does not want to go ahead with their treatments, and so on. An occupational therapist can look at this scenario and think, oh my goodness, this impediment to the flow of this person's life or their occupations is the fact that this big rock that's in the way has to do with this person's injury and the consequences of it. Maybe there's something that can be done together with other members of the team to try to alleviate this person's level of pain or help them to adapt their activities to not elicit more pain or to even to do something about that pain to, to manage it properly. Maybe with the social and physical environment problems, it requires you to make some recommendations about 
adaptations in the home or adaptations or tools or instruments the person can use to be able to navigate some of those difficulties. And then maybe with the family, you need to have a family conference together, maybe with the help of the social worker or the counseling psychologist, and to be able to then talk about the experience of and, and the difficulties and the conflicts that are occurring, and to try to move those river walls back a little bit. And then, of course, the driftwood itself. Can you actually take that stubbornness and that headstrongness and channel it into an activity that's graded with just the right level of challenge to be able to give some control back to this person over their situation? And in that way, the OT using the Kawa model and the driftwood in this case can actually bring about a multifaceted approach or at least a list of a comprehensive list of interventions that are possible to suggest in this particular situation. So that's probably more than what you were asking about with the driftwood, but there it is. No, that's great. That gave me time in my mind to just think, I love the flexibility of the model where our personal factors can be so multifaceted. Sometimes they're strengths, sometimes they're just neutral, sometimes they become a barrier. And that really resonates with how I experience so many aspects of my life, for sure. Yeah. Well, you you will have noticed that, you know, what's really interesting about the Kawa model is that the river changes from from moment to moment to moment. You know, what your river flow looked like last week on, you know, last Tuesday is slightly different from how it may look today. But the essential part of this, and it harkens back to the origins of the Kawa model where the Japanese person, and this, by the way, is common amongst all of the indigenous peoples of the world, that this sense that the environment and the self are inseparable. They're inseparably connected and always in flux, always changing. And so all of the elements of this river are touching each other. They're always in contact with one another. And if you change one part of the river, it's going to affect everything else. And of course, it will affect the flow of of the river as well. So instead of isolating issues and problems and putting them into some kind of a cubbyhole and then only treating that, this model requires you to consider whatever it is that you're looking at and its connection to all other aspects of this person's life. So the other hidden part of this metaphor is that all things are connected. Mm -hmm. I guess to start transitioning to the article, I see the application for the individual, and I definitely see it for teams. I think we've all been on those teams where you just experience how interconnected you all are and how someone's bad morning affects everything. And um, so I guess turning to the article, I was curious just to hear your initial impressions of it, what you thought of the research. Well, you know, I I have to say that when I first read the article, I was elated to the point where I I was almost teary-eyed, you know, because I think back to the days when the Kawam model was first developed. And I was working together with clinicians and students and clients of occupational therapy to develop uh, the model 
And but because Japan is a hierarchically structured society, uh, and clinicians are at the near the bottom of the tri the, the hierarchy, the Japanese people that I worked with were subject to a lot of adversity. They were basically ostracized by their professional community because they had, together with me, under my leadership, developed something, a model, that their venerated professors had been unable to do over the course of the last 50 years. So there was a pushback against it, adversity in the form of an embargo on all articles about the Kawa model. We could not publish anything in Japan about the Kawa model at the time. So when I think about those hardships, and that, by the way, is what compelled me to leave Japan. I was just so angry about what had happened that I thought, well, if the Japanese can't appreciate this that was made in their own country, I'm going to take it internationally. So then I come across an article like this where it's not me that's writing about the Kawa model or anybody that's sort of connected with it in the past, but somebody who has taken it for what it is and then has explored its potential and its use in an area that, you know, isn't so central to occupational therapy even. I just found it incredibly inspiring and I was elated. I was just so very happy to be able to see it and to read it. And in terms of also reifying what we kind of knew about the Kawa model beforehand for its potential to support the development and the growth of teams, mm -hmm. interprofessional teams. Yeah, I would have loved to have been on, in on those conversations with the team talking about their river and I imagine it being such a fun discussion and I see so much value there. I think one of the questions that I had that pertains to lots of people, when I was reading about how it was structured, most therapists gave an hour per week, which I was like, yeah, that seems really achievable. I can see that happening in my rehab clinic down the street. But there was this what the leader gave a lot of time each week because she was meeting with people individually and must have felt very comfortable with the Kawa model to walk people through it. And I think the question that spurred for me is, what do you think people need to know about the Kawa model to start implementing it, either as an individual or as a team? Can they read the PDF you have on your website? And is that enough? Do they need to read the book? What's that threshold of that you think of where people can start using it? I find that, that the best way, and I do this with all of my students, is I begin with people using the Kawa model on themselves. You know, take the model, and it's, it's simple concepts. There's only four concepts. And take a look at how your river is flowing today. And use the four categories to help to organize your thoughts about how your life is flowing at this present time. And then when you're able to then do that, then choose a time in the past some point in time that you can remember or that was remarkable to you and try to then imagine what your river was like at the time, you know, what the social environment was like, 
what your physical environment was like, you know, what kind of driftwood played prominently in your life at the time, and what kinds of boulders and rocks of different sizes and shapes you would have been encountering at that time, right? And then from there to then look at the future. I mean, by the way, we look at the past to understand where our rivers have come from and how all of those things that happened in the past actually affect how our lives flow today. Then look to the future at some point, whether it's five weeks, five days, you know, five months from now, five years from now, choose a point in time and ask yourself, how would you like your river to be flowing in, in that period of time? And use your imagination. And if possible, to make it aspirational, you know, in terms of like, how would I like my river, my, my life to be flowing in that time? And what do I imagine some of the issues might be that I'm, that I have to work my way through and, you know, what kind of driftwood are going to play prominently at that point? What do the river walls and sides, what are they going to look like? The social environment, the physical environment. And by that way, you can maybe get a sense of, a better sense of your state of being and, and who you are. And then to be able to, I hope, and it's always been my hope about the Kawa model, is that the Kawa model elicits Hope. Hope for better times. Hope for a better status of well-being. And not just to be mired in and stuck in this overwhelming morass of difficulties and problems, river walls and sides, you know, getting thicker and narrowing, rocks of all different sizes and shapes that kind of appear out of nowhere driftwood being tangled up in a mass where the river can hardly flow. Yeah. So that's the threshold is try to even take that, that PDF manual. That's the, that's very simply put together and try it on yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can imagine if you're doing it for a team to try it once with a group, even like your family, Yeah. sit down with a small group and just practice walking through it in that way. Yeah. And, you know, can I just add one more thing in this part? You can probably either keep or edit out. (laughs) Is just more, just a little bit, one more insight into the Kawa model and teams. And what has been a positive aspect of the Kawa model is that when teams come together, interprofessional teams come together, one of the biggest barriers to the team actually coming together is that everybody is consumed with their own professions and their own particular perspective of the client. So one particular profession might just be looking at, you know, the person's muscle strength, joints, range of motion, and so on and so forth. That the person may be just looking at speech or, or swallowing issues and difficulties. Another person, you know, is looking at the diagnosis and what is happening at the cellular level, right? And on and on. And the OT, of course, comes in and we're just oriented toward being client-centered, that we want to, uh, you know, understand the situation in terms of the environment and, you know, the person in terms of the personal factors and, and everything else, right? So when these teams come together, and I've seen this happen with IPE, interprofessional education processes in different institutions, is that, yeah, it's great to come together and to envision, you know, working together, 
But the biggest barrier to people really coming together is that they're more consumed about their own professional mandate and what they're about and what they have to bring to the table than actually looking at the client, actually stepping back and just seeing the client as a human being, right? And so this is what the Kawa model allows us to do. Instead of looking to to the client through the cultures of our own professions, we make it all about the client. And, you know, the article mentions that the Kawa model is culturally neutral. And this is how we make it neutral, is that we make it all about the client. And not our perspective of the client, but rather first and foremost the client and how they what their narrative is and what their issues are, what the experience of day-to-day reality looks like for them at this point in time, told in their own words and on their own terms. And when that can then become the center of all things, then it's much more humbling for us to look at the situation or the person, the client, from the lens of our own profession, but we're able to then to see what pieces everybody else has to bring to the table and why those other pieces are as important to be able to support the client with. So that's the other insight that I just wanted to be able to share with you with regard to teams yeah, and what this article begins to allude to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having that shared language that's familiar, but pushes us just a little bit out of our silo, both with teams and when we're working with our clients. We get so locked in our occupational therapy way of thinking that we forget that doesn't connect with our team sometimes and it doesn't connect with our clients. And that makes me so excited about the Kawa model to really see a model that is client-centered. We talk about client-centeredness all the time. But I think for me, 10 years ago, client-centeredness, I think the shadow message there was still do my OT thing and just be nice to the client. Like the client was not really at the center. And I love seeing this model that pushes us there. I can't believe it. We're almost out of time. Unless, was there anything else you really wanted to say about the... Yeah, the final thing that I wanted to say about the Kawa model is this, is that I, I tell everybody, if, you, if there's one takeaway that I want people to have about the Kawa model, if there's one important essential lesson about the Kawa model, it is this. It is that think about your client as being the theorist who develops a model to explain what their experience of day-to-day life is like. The therapist becomes a student of that theorist model, asking all kinds of questions like, why is this rock so big? Or you've drawn some fish inside your river. What do those mean? Asking questions so that you're trying to learn as clearly and as genuinely as possible the client's narrative, what their reality is. And then from there, it then is a good way to get into a collaborative process of being able to validate the client's experience and then to be able to say, what kinds of things would you like to see in your river ahead? 
And as an OT, we would then talk about the kinds of things that we could do together with the client to help them to get to where they want to go. So that's the, the ultimate lesson about the Kawa model. It's just merely a metaphor. You know, there's no magic in the Kawa model at all. It just happens to be a very useful metaphor. But it's a vehicle of communication that, that really helps to establish that relationship uh, with the client and to take what is the most sacred, which is their narrative of their day-to-day realities, rather than you coming in as the learned occupational therapist and saying, you know, I've got a doctorate in OT, and so I'm going to explain to you your reality for you better than you can explain it yourself. (laughs) Or I'm going to take whatever you tell me and I'm going to squash it and filter it through these complex concepts and words of a particular high-level model that I learn and that I use on a regular basis. Hmm. The Kawa model, actually what it represents is it's you're turning the power dynamic and structure upside down on its head. And you're making the client truly the center of all concern. And that's the kind of OT that we all signed up for occupational therapy to be a part of. We know our clients' stories are sacred, but even after spending time with this model, just hearing you say it in that way, I'm still going to have to lay in bed and think about it at night because it's such <laughs> like a mind shift from how I was taught and how I was taught that way. And the reality is that I practiced with the client, not at the center of a whole lot of my sessions. And I love yeah. this model that equips us to do what we wanted to be doing when we yeah. became occupational therapists. And it's hard to get there, you know, given where occupational therapy is currently situated, you know, in institutions that are really led by the medical model and where, you know, insurance companies dictate what you can do and what you can't do with your client. But I want the Kawa model to at least be a framework that the occupational therapist keeps in their their heads so that they never lose sight of the client in the context in the full context of their realities. You might be, you know, mandated to only work on a certain portion of it. Maybe you're a hand therapist and you, you can only work on this part, but to be conscious of how important this is and how it's interconnected with all other aspects of their being and their environment, their reality. So, yeah, there's lots of insights and wonderful things that are associated with the Kawa model. And I hope that it's something that will help our profession to now take the next step into this era that is often called the postmodern era and where we can really move occupational therapy toward its true potential. And that is to enable people from all streams of life to be able to engage and participate in activities and processes of daily life that matter. Hmm. Well, I definitely feel hooked and I'm so thankful for this conversation today and definitely looking forward to our next conversation on the podcast. And yeah, just wanted to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. You're most welcome. And yeah, thank you for having me. And it's great to be one of your podcast guests. (laughs) Thank you. 
value all. It was just such an honor to speak with Dr. Awama today. And I just personally really believe the Kawa model is such a gift to our profession. And in talking, you can just hear how much heart and passion he has poured into this model and to this gift to us. So as I mentioned in the beginning, for some of you, I hope that the next thing you do is log into the OT Potential Club and take a test and earn a certificate for your time today. And if you're interested in learning more about the OT Potential Club and the other resources that we have in there, I just encourage you to head to otpotential.com to get a sense of just the amazing research that we've covered and the inspiring speakers that we've been able to talk to. And one of my favorite parts about the club is the conversation that happens inside of it about models like this. And you really get to hear how people digest the research and are applying it to their practice. It's a special community and I really hope that you will consider joining us there. And lastly, as always, I just want to thank you so much for joining us here today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time.